welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Glory be to God. Thankful for um, the music through which we are moved. And the word is well, and uh, I have to, as we begin, finish two verses. And uh, I was going to make a point at the scripture reading how we so often stop at chapter breaks, and that illustrates uh, the problem right there. Even I uh, just accidentally stopped two verses short. Uh, There were no chapter breaks in the original Greek text, and so at the conclusion of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul had written, For you have been bought with a price, therefore therefore glorify God in your body. I was going to continue by saying, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man to not touch a woman, but because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. So that provides a conclusion and actually a a fitting, an appropriate beginning to the passage that we're going to study today. I've titled this message from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Heterosexual Monogamous Marriage. I I may think that there might be one or two people visiting today. Uh, who have joined us, who after hearing that earlier scripture reading from 1 Corinthians in chapter 6, they find themselves asking, uh, did God really just say that? And as we begin, I remind us that the very first deceit offered in the Bible was by Satan, who asked the woman, did God really say And the answer is, yes, God really did say that. And he's planning on saying it again in our passage today, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And because God's word is holy, it is true, it is complete, it it would be completely sufficient for God to have only said it once. That, that That would be completely sufficient. But when it comes to matters as crucial as sexual purity and the sanctity of marriage, God, because of His loving grace, He gives identical instructions throughout Scripture again and again to ensure that there is no possibility of misunderstanding. Before I begin today's message um, I have a brief story to share from Alistair Begg. I promised that last week I'm going to deliver. And uh, at Southern Seminary in Louisville, when Alistair Begg was teaching this passage, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 through 8, on the topic of sexual purity, he shared this experience. It was at a different college, a different Christian college, where he was teaching 
uh, on the same subject, when a faction of the audience stood up, turned their backs, and walked out. Concerning that experience, Alistair says this, quote, We are facing an increasing pushback from a compromised church. A whole group stood up and walked out and created manifold chaos for 10 days on the college campus claiming that Beg had come and that he was mean, that he was unkind, and all of that. Unquote. Beg had come and he was mean. He was unkind and all of that. Now, if that were alleged against any other preacher, I, I might believe it, but not Alistair Begg. Uh, I have, and probably many of you here have as well, been listening to his messages uh, for years. I've listened to scores of his messages, and I've never heard him say anything mean or cruel or unkind. Um, I've already put the link to that message, by the way, on our Facebook page, our church Facebook page, and uh, you can listen to him, listen to his own words from him uh, as he describes just how mean he is. Um, I, am, I am, in fact, going to use a handful, at least a couple more quotes from Beg today uh, when I don't want to say something myself. And sadly, when those who claim to be Christian you know, can't openly oppose Scripture, uh, the charge I most often hear second-handed is this, well, it isn't what he said, it's how he said it. It isn't what he said, but how he said it. Now, folks, that, that is just an utter cop-out. It's just a cop-out uh, to which I would confidently reply, well, it isn't actually how I said it at all, is it? It's that I actually said it. And the reason I say it is because God who has given us His Word says it. Today we'll discover that being faithful to the words that God says is it's not being mean. It isn't being mean. But in actually the most loving thing that any pastor can do is tell you and teach you what God has said in His Word. What He has said about purity. What He has said about holiness. For on the night in which He is betrayed, the Lord Jesus prayed this for the benefit of His disciples. He asked God the Father to, to set them apart, to make them holy. Actually, quote, He said, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. And the very next day, those who prided themselves as being religious people, they nailed him to a cross. I would propose the most unkind thing any pastor could do for his church is withhold the truth from God's flock. Still, I'm going to attempt to read this passage from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I'm going to attempt to read it very nicely, okay? 
In verse 1, Paul writes, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us instruction as how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own body in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion, like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Well, I might as well begin by addressing the, the, the least difficult part of this, this very challenging passage. The term finally in verse 1, it does not introduce a conclusion to Paul's letter. Uh, rather, it supplies the reader with, with a realization or, or a fulfillment of what was promised to them uh, back in chapters 2 and 3. Here it is, finally. And this is, this is Paul's preliminary written exhortation concerning topics that they were still lacking. And there is likely no more timely lesson for the modern church than is contained in this passage. When, when Paul and Silas, to preserve their own lives, were forced to flee from Thessalonica by darkness, when they did that, what remained lacking in Thessalonica is precisely what most American churches are lacking. Instruction in the Lord Jesus' commandments on sexual purity and the sanctity of marriage. It was a, a misfortune for me having grown up in a liberal church. Uh, it's a misfortune that I never heard any of these passages read before the congregation. The scripture readings, we had three of them every Sunday, were selected by that denomination's headquarters, and they were mailed to each local church every week. We never got to hear anything except what national leadership found acceptable. They withheld God's truth on marriage and sanctification Folks, which seems to be increasingly common today. Yet these, are, these instructions are given in the Lord Jesus, we see in verse 1. 
and by the authority of the Lord Jesus, we see in verse 2, and they display, therefore, the highest credential of divine inspiration. This is God speaking. And in effect, what Paul is saying to the reader is this. What I am writing carries the same authority as the words that were spoken by Jesus Christ while he was walking the earth and preaching. And therefore, to reject what Paul is declaring, it's to deny Jesus Christ himself. And in actually, in actuality, this is exactly what Paul declares in his summary provided in verse 8. He says, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but God. And consequently, consequently, when this subject matter, when this subject matter of sexual purity is preached faithfully to Scripture, all right, and with biblical integrity, when it's preached faithful to Scripture and with biblical integrity, when someone complains, I don't like how the preacher said it, as they accused against Alistair, he or she is, is in reality admitting this. They're saying, I don't like what God says about sex. So he or she should just honestly confess then, I don't like what I hear when these scriptures are read aloud and I refuse to accept them when they are explained by the pastor because this runs contrary to everything that I hold dear in my heart. That's what they ought to say. Because that is what is true. Now I realize, you know, compared to what you may hear elsewhere, uh, that, that, that may sound a little bit mean. But at least it's truthful. At least it's being honest. And it is therefore compassionate and it is loving to declare. Because Scripture requires us, just as stated by Joshua, in Joshua 24 and verse 15, choose today whom you will serve. Will we dedicate our heart's allegiance to divine truth that God has spoken with clarity in Scripture? Or to the moral beliefs about sex that we have adopted from our surrounding culture. Or that we have fabricated in our own minds. What are we going to, what are we going to dedicate our allegiance to? Paul's instruction in verse 1 is the Lord Jesus' instruction about how we are to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, but that we excel still more. You know, Thessalonica had a good start. Um, but they are not yet completely sanctified in the Spirit and set apart to God. Like us, like us, 
for them, there, remo- there, there, there remains room for spiritual growth and obedience. For some of us who are present today, all right, for some of us who are present today, that gap left, that gap remaining until spiritual maturity, it's a whole lot, all right? For others amongst us today, the room for spiritual reform and growth is even bigger. And I can assure us all this, we we all fall short. We all stumble in many ways. Therefore, verse 2 provides a prescription for all of us. For every single person sitting here. No one is singled out. This is for all of us. It's not a different path of sanctification or spiritual reform for pastors than there is for everyone else in the church. And Paul writes this, For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, and he becomes even more specific, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Here, Paul's teaching merely mirrors the teaching of Jesus Christ, precisely mirrors what Christ taught. In Matthew chapter 19, the religious establishment arrives, all right, they're in their long flowing robes, looking very, very religious. And they ask Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Now, I'm sure uh, at least a few of them are hoping, oh, I hope he says yes. We're hoping that, that Jesus will, will go along with the commonly held tradition that we've been holding to. <laughs> and still today, many, uh, per, perhaps even the majority, of the religious clergy are quick to excuse any feeble excuse for divorce. But Jesus replied by prescribing God's definition of marriage found in Genesis chapter 1. And he told them this, Have you not read that God who created created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So marriage, as God defines it, as Jesus Christ defines it, is one husband and one wife for life. You probably saw the title of today's message. I spoke it to you earlier. It's printed in the bulletin, Heterosexual Monogamous Marriage. Folks, that's it. And that comes from that message I heard from Alistair. Those are his words. That's his conclusion. Heterosexual Monogamous Marriage. There exists no other definition of marriage. You can... Call it what you want. 
You might even get a government office to issue you a certificate that has stamped across the top, marriage certificate. But any other gender association does not exist within God's definition of marriage. God God doesn't use that term for it, all right? Therefore, I'm not going to use it either. God declares any form of sexual activity behind, uh, except between a male husband and a female wife. It, it is fornication. It is fornication. The Greek term is porneia. Um, a theologian named Bill Witherington III states this about the word. Quote, porneia has a root sense of prostitution. Remember our scripture reading earlier. Uh, porne meaning prostitutes, but it could sometimes have a specific reference to incest. He gives a couple examples. Though often it was simply an umbrella term for any and all sorts of sexual sin, including fornication. He gives a couple more examples. This is his conclusion. In other words, in Jewish and Christian circles, it referred to all sexual activity outside marriage. Pornea refers to sexual immorality, to, to fornication. In fact, Jesus concluded by saying, whoever divorces his wife except for pornea and marries another woman commits adultery. So ultimately, the only permitted sexual activity must be within the boundaries of heterosexual, monogamous marriage. Arguing about obscure Old Testament references, about look, what's, uh, look what uh, the kings did in Israel. Look, look what uh, David did in Israel. Um, arguing about obscure references. First off, God never told... Um, Never told them to take those extra wives. Secondly, if if God had a purpose for having a man marry his deceased brother's wife, then God had a purpose for that. But arguing about obscure references simply, simply reveals that you refuse to accept Christ's instructions to his church. Solomon was never told to go out and get all those hundreds of wives. That's something that he did. That's a different topic for another day. Um, We're told in verse 3, this is the will of God. Your sanctification, then it gets very specific that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel or own body in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles, who do not know God. Consequently then, for the Christian, there exists no friends, no boyfriends, no girlfriends with benefits. Jesus provides no exemption for a mutually agreed upon cohabitation. Why? 
We saw it earlier in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9, where we are warned to not be deceived, that neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says, such were some of you. Such were some here. It's likely that many or most or maybe all of us can see our past immersed in a combination of those sins. Nothing special about us. But we were washed. We were sanctified. We were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the Spirit of our God. Now, I'm going to let that tension just sit there for a little bit. And before I I let the air out of the room, uh, notice Paul's reference in that passage to the washing of the Holy Spirit. It's going to be important for our conclusion. The washing of the Holy Spirit. Folks, we were washed. Paul there is describing the same cleansing from sin as seen in Titus 3 and verse 5, where Paul assures God saved us according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. That's how He did it. He saved us. And through spiritual rebirth, we become new people. We're we're new creatures. We, We learned just a few weeks ago about how this washing of regeneration occurs at the moment of salvation. The moment you trust in Christ. When God, by His loving grace, He changes our hearts. He changes our thoughts. He changes our behavior. We become new creatures where where old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And through through this renewing of God's Spirit, we are told, as Christ told Nicodemus, you you must be born again. So speaking to our new life in Christ, the Apostle Peter issues the same decree. It's seen in 1 Peter 4 and verse 1 where Peter states, Live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. What is the will of God? Your sanctification. Peter continues, and and there's got to be people here who identify with this, all right? Peter continues, For the time already past is sufficient for you who have... For you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and other abominable idolatries. Folks, Scripture and human experience, Scripture and human experience repeatedly demonstrate that such behaviors... They never provide satisfaction. They never add satisfaction to life. And in Romans 13 and verse 13, it says, Let us behave properly as in the day, says Paul, 
not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. You remember how I stated earlier that things that are really crucial, things that are important, they're restated in Scripture. It's because God, by His grace, uh, He doesn't want any confusion on the topics. It's very, very clear. And proposing that, proposing that forbidden fruit provides satisfaction, folks, that's a lie that started back in the garden. And in reality, what it provides is guilt and shame and nakedness and suspicion and fear and paranoia and poverty and division and divorce, sometimes incarceration, disease, and death. Folks, the last time that I checked, there aren't any of these that are any fun. They're no fun at all as a result of any of these. Um, But because of the love that God shows for us, that in while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, He desires to spare you and every single person here Every single one of us here, God desires in His love that we be spared from that pain that is so characteristically a result of sexual immorality. The honesty present in this passage displays divine affection. It's not mean. It's God's love. But the government won't say it. The schools refuse to teach it. Oprah won't run a special on it. Counselors are unwilling to prescribe it. And therefore, pulpits are commissioned by God to preach it. Will this truth offend somebody? I I suppose it will. I suppose there's a long list of unbelieving Gentiles who do not know God remaining in the world. Surely somebody will be offended. But if the understanding that sex can actually be enjoyed, it can actually be enjoyed within the boundaries of marriage, if that can convince one young lady or one young man to wait thereby spare them from all of the destruction that comes from sexual immorality, a bad life decision. If anyone is spared by the Word of God, I imagine a little offense is worth it. It'll all be worth it. And because saving lives from the devastating consequences of sin brings glory to God, that's what He does. That's His business. And business is good. Then we need to stop withholding scriptural truth from our families.
the, sub, the subject matter of this passage, uh, folks, <laughs> what it ought to do, what it really ought to do, it ought to motivate you to seek a spouse if you don't already have one. And it should cause you to appreciate your current spouse more and more as you remember your life prior to trusting Christ and all of the havoc, all, all of the heartache that was experienced navigating the minefield of illicit relationships, all of the nuance, the drama, the trouble that it supplies. That's what it does. That's what it does. Now to let a little air out. Right? Does any of us here have the sinful flesh mastered? Impure thoughts, selfish motives, fleshly tendencies, probably not. Probably not mastered. But does the fact that we only have limited control over what we think suggest that we should surrender control over our bodily behavior? No, no, surely that is not the case. Adultery committed in the thoughts of the heart is sin. But it does not equal the trespass of adultery. All right? Thoughts do not equal deeds. Folks, that is a distorted conclusion of Jesus' teaching from the Sermon on the Mount uh, by people who want to use Jesus' words to insist, well, we're all already adulterers at heart. So let's just cast off all restraint of the body as well. Folks, that is not the conclusion that Jesus was pursuing when he exposed the lusts of the heart in Matthew chapter 5. Folks, thoughts do not equal deeds. For in verse 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification, and that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own body in sanctification and honor. When it comes to moral compromise, the only biblical reaction, the only Christian reaction, is abstinence. That's it. The New, uh, the New Testament commentator Marshall states this, quote, Where things are evil, the Christian attitude is necessarily one of abstention and not one of moderation. Another one I got from Alistair. He quoted Marshall. Our Christian responsibility is to abstain. Not to put God to the test to discover what level, what threshold of compromise with porneia we might be able to get by with. Because I'm told there's a man in Port St. Lucie fancies himself a Bible teacher who likes to invite people into his homes for studies and, well, who was living with a woman who at the time had another husband. 
they negotiated a period of, well, living together. I'm told it is until she could negotiate a divorce. Then they could finally marry and, you know, set everything right. Really? A Bible teacher? Tell me this. How does such a Bible teacher teach this passage? Or any other passage like it? Ever? No. No. This is another point where a quote from Alistair Begg comes in handy. You ready? So mean. Listen to this. Alistair says, quote, I notice a disturbing trend among a younger generation of men who have tripped over and discovered Reformed theology and instead of that apparently fashioning in them a peculiar interest in holiness, it at least gives an early indication, says Alistair, of a more than an incipient antinomianism which in turn pervades congregations and which over time will leave a dreadful, dreadful legacy. This is God's will for you, your sanctification. This then involves, says Alistair, a clean cut with sexual immorality. A clean cut with sexual immorality. Boy, that meanie. Verse 4, each of you know how to possess his own body in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before, and solemnly warned you, solemnly warned you, there's a continuing discussion as to which vessel or, or which body it is that a man is supposed to possess in honor, in sanctification and honor. Is it speaking of his own body or is it speaking of the body of his wife that he must honor? Grammatically, it can fall either way. Well, I'd say, why not both? But if you want my opinion as to which Paul implies, the strength of the argument seems to lie with the man controlling his own body. Because it is, you know, if he is a Christian, because it is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and besides, you don't have to be married, you don't have to have a wife in order to defraud a brother in the matter. It's for the man's own body. Any single man or woman must exercise the same abstinence from immorality as any married man or married woman. Singles don't get a pass, all right? And this is why during our scripture reading, Paul said, it is, a, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, but because of porneia, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. That's the solution. Why marry? Because all sexual activity beyond or outside of 
heterosexual monogamous marriage is immoral. And the Lord is the avenger of all these things. Scripture's hard line has caused some to conclude, well, God just doesn't want us to have any fun. Folks, that is not absolutely not true. God urges you to have all of the fun that you want within the safety of committed, heterosexual, monogamous marriage. Where it is protected, where it is healthy, where there aren't children born into homes without married parents, where there won't be sexually transmitted disease, where there will never be a temptation to visit a clinic in attempt to cover one's tracks. Does any of that sound like fun? It's not fun. Indeed, this crooked and perverse generation has a very strange perception of what is fun. Folks, consider this is, these are just the tip of the iceberg of all the risks and the repercussions that come as a result of sexual immorality. And for someone who is truly a Christian, truly born again, to believe that they're actually going to get away with it. When the Lord is the avenger, Many commentators believe this may indicate the Lord will bring vengeance, repercussions when He returns. Folks, I'm not convinced. I don't think we have that long. And here's the reason why. The only other place this same Greek term for avenger, the only other place it is used in the Bible is Romans 13 where the institution of civil government is called what? An avenger. A minister of God to bring the wrath on the one who practices evil. And we know there that the avenger describes repercussions during this lifetime. It's not later. We're not going to get by with it. Nobody's going to get away from it. And if you are a Christian and you truly think that you're going to defraud a brother in this matter without experiencing severe consequences, you're sadly mistaken. Sadly mistaken. I am. I am astonished. Let's stay first too because I hear this probably more than we need to. There are a lot of very faithful pastors and teachers and elders out there, all right? We do trash them often enough. Um, but I am astonished by the frequent reports of pastors who actually thought they were going to get away with it. Either they don't believe Scripture or they never taught this passage. You might skate by for a while and if you're actually... An unbeliever, you might skate by for quite a while. I don't know. But if you're a pastor left in charge of protecting Christ's bride, being a caretaker for the bride of Christ, his church, and you transgress in this manner, 
I assure you, you are not going to get away with it. Exposure may come through a phone call, a text, an email, a photo, a sighting, a pregnancy. But somehow Christ is going to expose you. It will eventually be caught. We see that again and again. Um, The same is true of any Christian who thinks he can defraud his Christian brother in a matter as serious as this. you better hope you don't get away with it. Because it would be more likely to indicate that you don't truly belong to Christ. And any single Christian man who would transgress the decency and the dignity of a single girl to gratify himself, you aren't going to get away with it. Alistair has some penetrating thoughts about that in the message. I'll just let you go there if you are interested. A passing urge can ruin both yours and another person's life. Scripture would suggest that urge and that desire that you have as a man, it ought to motivate you to take a wife, to love her, to care for her, to faithfully care for the children who come as a result of your passions. Heterosexual monogamous marriage is good for her. It is good for you. It is good for your family. It is good for society. And some people say that churches shouldn't be preaching this. Think about that. Churches are just quiet down on that stuff. Who would say such a thing? Finally, in verse 7, we find God's ultimate desire. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. He has, we learned last week, He has predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son. And it is impossible to be conformed to the image of Christ through porneia. It's impossible. For anyone to be caught in this serious of, a, serious of a transgression and then to express that he or she is a Christian, it's inconsistent with Scripture. And it is incompatible with a heart that is progressively being transformed into the image of Christ. We who are being transformed into that reflection of Jesus will produce evidence of it in our lives. You will see it. Your family will see it. Your children will see it. Your friends will see it. Other Christians will see it. Your pastor will see it. And if that change doesn't occur, and if you're still producing the same dirty laundry, living with a person who's not your spouse, whatever it may be, 
then all of those groups, including your unsaved friends and family, out of necessity, they must conclude this. There's no power in your gospel. There's no power in what you preach because they see that you are living just like they do. Therefore, regardless of the state in which you walked in today, trust me, your, your condition probably isn't a whole lot more dysfunctional than others around here. We all stumble in many ways. But God has called us to sanctification. And this must be our conclusion. Is a Christian renewed by the Holy Spirit of God and born again? Is a Christian renewed and indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God able to listen to Paul's instruction and still continue to live his or her life immersed in sexual immorality? The answer has to be no. No matter what state you walked in today, leaving, the answer is no. And if you belong to Christ, the Spirit compels you to comply with what the Word of God says. Folks, that, this just proves how dangerous this passage is to the enemy. These scriptures are very, very dangerous to Satan and the work that he's trying to do in destroying lives. Because when Satan comes and whispers in your ear now as you leave, and, and, and as he says, not literally, I'm saying figuratively, did God really say that? There's only one reply that we can answer. Yeah, God really said that. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, you're obviously not rejecting the Apostle Paul. You're not rejecting the pastor. Uh, thankfully, I believe that Alistair slept uh, with a very clear conscience that evening after all of those people walked out in protest. Um, but he, who, he or she who rejects this is not rejecting the man who preaches it, but rejecting God who gives you His Holy Spirit. Hmm. Folks, this... This final warning, we're almost through. This final warning is in verse 8 is so critical. So critical in light of what we've just discussed. Paul says, you are rejecting God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. You might have a translation that says, God, you're rejecting God who has given you His Holy Spirit. That's, that's a poor translation. It, it makes it sound as if it is, it's a completed action that God has already given you uh, the Holy Spirit in the past tense. But in the Greek, it's written in the present tense. And it's not a completed action, all right? It's a potential action. A better understanding, though I'm no Greek scholar by any means, would likely be gained by reading verse 8 in this way. Any person who rejects this rejects God, the one who gives the Holy Spirit. So the way it is written, Paul isn't assuming that every reader who is reading this letter is already saved. 
He's rather assuming he who has the Holy Spirit will not reject this teaching. And the reason verse 8 is so critical is the person who rejects Paul's instruction is in effect confessing this. I don't believe the Holy Spirit really changes people. I don't believe in a life made new in Christ. I don't believe in a divine washing and renewal by the Holy Spirit of God that will empower people to overcome sin. That's what is being said. I simply don't believe God's Spirit does that kind of work. Folks, in other words, that person is admitting, I don't believe in a spiritual rebirth that changes people. They have rejected God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. That's not the God we know. We know Christ, that in Christ there is victory over sin. We have seen it progressively in our lives. It started as a small work, and it is increasing to a larger work. And Paul says that we should excel still the more. We're no longer the revilers that we once were, we have been washed, we have been sanctified, and we have been justified in the name, Lord, name of the Lord Jesus and in the Spirit of our God. Therefore, Christian men are faithful to their wives and wives to their husbands. We defend our homes and our families from the devastating consequences of marital infidelity. And consistent with the Holy Scriptures and the doctrines of Jesus Christ, we teach our children from an early age how sexual immorality is destructive to home, to health, and to humanity. As I said earlier, what type of person would propose that churches should not be teaching this? And what kind of man or woman would stand up in a Christian college and walk out in protest and claim that this material is mean and unloving. As Alistair stated, we are facing an increasing pushback from a compromised church. Let's close in prayer.